Hi everybody, it's Derek, and this is And That's The Way It Was for October 18th, 2018. We're going to get a little off the beaten path today. Uh, I've got an interview for you guys that I uh, think will be very interesting. Uh, I'm going to be speaking in a minute here uh, with Emerson Brooking. Uh, Emerson is a writer and a security analyst uh, who specializes in digital, the digital space and uh, social media and the internet. And he's just written, uh, along with political scientist Peter W. Singer, uh, a book called Like War, uh, The Weaponization of Social Media. Uh, it's about the ways that bad actors, everybody from Chicago street gangs to Donald Trump, uh, is is using social media to kind of uh, take propaganda, kind of the traditional notions of propaganda, and put them on uh, not even steroids, like human growth hormone. <laughs> I mean, just really to ratchet them up uh, and flood people, flood the 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 market, basically flood the internet, flood the information that we get uh, with propaganda, with fake news, with you know whatever you want to call it. Uh, it's a very interesting book, uh, and he's going to be here to talk about it, literally here, actually, in a first uh, for this podcast. Uh, we're going to have a live interview. He was kind enough to come uh, all the way out to the suburbs uh, <laughs> to talk to me in person, so uh, that should be nice from a sound quality perspective, I'm hoping. Uh and, uh, you know, we're going to dig into the book. I'm going to ask him some questions about uh, what it's all about to kind of give you a sense of, of what's in it. Uh, and we're also going to talk about some recent cases uh, that aren't in the book, but I think are examples of the phenomenon of nefarious actors uh, you know, swamping social media to get their message out, even if their message maybe not necessarily be 100% the truth. Uh, so I'm looking forward to this. I hope it'll be a good interview, and uh, we'll get started with that now. Okay, uh, I'm here with uh, writer and security analyst Emerson Brooking. Uh, he's written a new book with uh, political scientist P.W. Singer called Like War, The Weaponization of Social Media. And he's been kind enough to schlep out to the suburbs to be here in person, the first time we've had an in-person interview on this show. Uh, Emerson, thanks for being here, and thanks for being on the show. Hey, Derek, thanks for having me. And congratulations on the book. Thank you. Uh, so uh, I wanted to talk about, we'll, we'll sort of build up to uh, some bigger issues here, but I wanted to ask you uh, to kind of lay out the premise of the book. The, the book starts off with a discussion of three different, I think, kind of case study examples of the phenomenon of, of what's happened to social media. The Trump campaign, or Donald Trump basically in general, uh, all the way back to 2009 or whenever it was that he got on Twitter. Uh, there's the case of ISIS and its use of social media to propagate its message and uh, to both recruit on the one hand and kind of... Uh, freak out the Iraqi army on the other hand is, is the, the way you know you sort of lay it out in the book uh, and then there's the case of somebody named Shaquan Thomas in Chicago is kind of a gangbanger uh, and used social media to to get his message out talk about what those cases have in common and and 
where you know what what your book is kind of laying out is the problem here sure uh first off to give the broadest overview of the book's argument it is essentially that posting is warfare that uh in a military sense information operations are no longer uh, something that's just run adjacent to a traditional military campaign but is now something that can actually affect some of the political objectives that you once only could have accomplished through force of arms and at the same time there's a new kind of category of conflict what we call like war in the book but it's had a lot of different names through the years a new category of conflict um, which is basically decided through competing al algorithmic, sorry, competing viral events, where uh, it's basically one side or the other pushing back and forth, trying to seize a little bit of the information domain and a fraction of attention. And that's decided most often through likes or favorites. You know, there's, there's little bits of uh, attention that you can give to a particular post or something to have it rise in uh, algorithmic significance. And so for these three examples, President Trump uh, was, you know, an incredible salesman, uh, reality TV star, excellent brander. Back in 2009, he didn't know what the Internet was. His staff ran his account. Uh, but that changed around 2010 or 2011, where... If you, uh, if you look at the metadata for how he managed Twitter, all of a sudden he's using the phone. And uh, his frequency of posts increases. He basically dumbs down the rhetoric. And he's continuously basically focus testing online to see what messages resonate and what don't. And then, for instance, he, he, he floats this uh, the Obama birther theory, I think back in 2010. He floats it through his Twitter. And is then, you know, it, uh, uh, at the same time, he's showing up to traditional media as much as he can to bolster these messages. But more and more, he begins to drive his messaging via Twitter. That pace continues. Uh, eventually, he decides to run for president. And Twitter becomes one of his primary weapons in doing so. Using his tweets, which no reporter could afford to ignore... Uh, he courts something like $5 billion in free media. He inspires a essentially an online army of disenchanted 4chaners and Reddit folks. And arguably, he hijacks the news cycle to such a degree and seeds so many stories at a time that traditional media, traditional political observers can't catch up. As we say in the book, you know, this was just a new campaign tactic, but his use of Twitter also was an information conflict that ultimately drew in hundreds of millions of people around the world. That's a Trump example. We have a very different example that we highlight uh, with the Islamic State. I, I think most folks listening know that, you know, ISIS and social media are pretty well connected. There was a lot of talk about that a few years ago. Um, and in fact, we originally thought this book was going to be about terrorism. We had no idea it was going to be about, say, Russian influence operations or the Trump campaign as well. Um, but a great example of ISIS's social media use comes 
in mid-2014, when about 1,500 uh, ISIS militants roar into northern Iraq. They have Toyota pickup trucks, they have AK-47s of countless guerrilla groups passed. Um, there's nothing particularly unique about their uh, battlefield tactics. But they also have a hashtag campaign. Instead of a traditional invasion, you know, you want to be a little bit stealthy about it. Uh, they actually have a hashtag, All Eyes on ISIS, which they propagate across Arabic Twitter using fan accounts as well as about 30,000 bots. And they managed to game it to the top of the Arabic-speaking uh, Twitter algorithm. And they maintain that position for days. So every time they're, they're posting a bit of uh, propaganda or a, an image that makes them look particularly fearsome, millions and millions of people are seeing it. And the Western media like is eating it up. So they come into Iraq, uh, and, but it's still 1,500 guys against Mosul, which had, I think, a population of 1.5 million, had at least on paper about 50 or 60,000 Iraqi defenders. But they evaporate. From the sources that we could read after the fact, they were just trying to account for why Mosul fell so fast and so decisively. They talk again and again about a contagion of fear that kind of swept over the population. The idea that this wasn't just 1,500 millennials in pickup trucks, but was some indomitable black horde. And, you know, most of the defenders, most Iraqis weren't online. Iraq in 2014 only had a internet penetration rate of like 20%. But all it takes is a few people who are seeing these messages. Then it spreads by word of mouth. So we argued that this had a decisive battlefield impact. It was the start of this incredible ISIS propaganda machine that would ultimately recruit some 40,000 people from all over the world to join them. I, I think it, I mean, yeah, I think that the case of ISIS is interesting because it's sort of a, um, the social media campaign played into some of the bigger cleavages in Iraqi society and the fact that the Iraqi army at that point was mostly uh, guys who were drafted out of the south or recruited out of the south and sent north who didn't really relate very well to the north because it was more Sunni Arab and Kurdish. Uh, and you take the combination of this social media campaign that sort of portrays ISIS as much a much bigger deal than it is, mm -hmm. um, which it, it's I mean it, you know it's, it was a horrible period, but I kind of chuckle at the the way the book lays it out. Like you know, there's this campaign that basically convinces the Iraqi army that this uh, wave of unstoppable conquerors is coming into town. So they all leave. They drop their guns and leave their equipment and run. And then, you know, 1,500 guys in a pickup, in a bunch of pickup trucks show up. Like, it's sort of this anticlimactic yeah. thing. But I think it, you know, it played on uh, some of the, the misgivings or the feelings that, that the Iraqi soldiers already had. Like, what am I doing here? Uh, you know, this isn't really my home. This is a part of the country that I don't really relate to and now i'm gonna risk my life against these terrible fighters yeah to defend people that you know i have very little connection with and so yeah i think like the combination of that was enough to 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 send them packing yeah <clears throat> and the uh iraqi central government's response was telling too as most of falls um and isis continues south uh i think 
toward Ramadi next, um, you know, there was a lot of fear in Baghdad and increasing ISIS-inspired terror attacks there. The first thing the government does, they don't have control over ISIS's internet access, which I think is mostly run out of proxies in Syria. Um, but they do have control over, like, Baghdad. So they immediately, like, they shut off the internet. They try as much as possible to restrict their own population's access to this propaganda because it was obvious even then that this was playing such a decisive strategic effect. So, and then the third case is this, um, is the Shaquan Thomas case, the, the Chicago kind of gang, uh, gang banger phenomenon, which I think is, is sort of related to ISIS. There's a, a way that these groups use social media to kind of advertise to people that, hey, you know, we're cool. We got, you know, we have something interesting going mm -hmm. on. You want to belong to uh, get a, be a part of that. Uh, but, I mean, yeah, talk a, a, a little bit about yeah. that third example. So, Shaquan uh, Thomas was a really talented rapper. Uh, I think he started on SoundCloud, but by this point he'd gravitated, to, migrated to YouTube. And I think he was 17 or 18. Uh, anyway, talented musician. Um, actually, like, had a good family life, uh, but was also, like a lot of his friends in the gang scene and, and he was a gangster disciple and he wanted everyone to know about it so he'd rap again and again about his gang affiliation and um you know the bigger you get i mean you're on twitter right like the more followers you get the more people take shots at you right. uh that, that was basically what happened here he start, he had enough attention that uh rivals saw attacking him is a good way to get attention for themselves so they try to kill him. They don't succeed the first time. Um, they try again. They miss the second time. And each time these these uh, other gang members come at him, Thomas does new videos about like how he's invincible. You sure, know, it's, you, it just adds you, to you the, fucked up. the, the uh, image, right? Yeah, yeah. I'm invincible. Now, uh, bystanders in some of these assassination attempts were killed. But he was okay. Um, oh. Anyway, they get him on the third attempt. And then he's immediately an online martyr. But to just show how interrelated social media is now with uh, gang life and gang violence, a week after Thomas's death, uh, another kid is seriously wounded or killed um, a dozen miles away for having made fun of Thomas. Just it, what what started basically was a sign of YouTube disrespect. Then moves okay. into another act of violence, which is retaliation for Thomas's death. And this was illustration of a wider phenomenon where, you know, virtually all gang recruiting is now done online. Gang members live their lives online. Something like eighty percent of fights in the Chicago school system break out because of comments that started online. And. Uh, it means where at a time gangs would fight over physical territory and when they wanted to front uh, you know they had to do it with like in physical proximity not anymore now if you have an affiliation with a gang you can uh, step on anyone anywhere even in another city but because it's all in the open 
then there's an impulse to respond. So it's this strange diffusion of violence and is arguably closely tied to the rising violence in Chicago and other cities, um, at least in this gang scene. And um, I mean, the, the broader connection here is that this is like, whether it's terrorism or whether it's gang violence, it's performative. You know, its primary goal is always to have an audience and always to accomplish a, a wider uh, moral effect. And we've see, we see how social media bolsters the effort so much in both of these cases. So I think, I mean, is it, it, can you trace uh, at, the, at the most toxic level, let's say ISIS uh, or, you know, uh, gangs and, and criminal activity, um, y you can sort of trace that aspect of things and the, you know, the performative aspect, I think, back to um, the way that celebrities use social media, the way that brands use social media. Is that fair to say? It's very fair to say. Okay, I think that's that's what, and I think, it's, I, I think you can put Trump in sort of, well, he's, he's more on the very toxic end now that he's president of the fucking United States. Uh, but he sort of occupies a bridge position, I think, where he he was for a long time just one of these celebrities using social media to kind of build his brand out. Yeah. Uh, and and but you know he's sort of weaponized it more and more. And you know you've had instances where people were justifiably afraid that he was about to start a war on Twitter. Uh, so I mean, is there? Are there other kind of examples of how we got from, I think, you know, you talk about Taylor Swift in the book, and I mean, you can go through any list of companies, and they're all using Twitter or Facebook or whatever to get their message out. How that moved into the political space and then into this, uh, you know, really extreme violent space well one of the most interesting bridges to me and really the the moment of transition um where this stops being purely performative and starts being tied directly to um violent acts is 2006 mexican cartels they start they're some of the first adopters of youtube and they start using the platform to post music videos which are uh, basically a compilation of uh, their hits, executions, and uh, just short clips of gang members having fun and brandishing their weapons, which they intended to have as recruiting tools. This is really the moment when this stuff first went online. Now, the precursor there is um, Al-Qaeda in Iraq, who... Uh, would record some of their executions. You know, I think most famously Daniel Pearl, was it? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. They would record their executions and then widely distribute them uh, via flash drive. But even then, uh, terrorist use of the internet was primarily uh, constrained to closed forum boards and other things. It was really 
gang violence. And it was really in Mexico where I think uh, these actors first realized that they could use the use social media so effectively as a compliment to their actions. So the other, I mean, the other aspect of this, <clears throat> aside from kind of adopting branding as a way to, you know, uh, set yourself apart and, and get your message out and uh, recruit. The other aspect of this is, is sort of a new way of doing propaganda. I mean, propaganda is a very old thing. It's not like we're in some kind of new age. But as you say in the book, I mean, traditionally propaganda is not that effective usually. It's, you know, it's hard to get your message across it's it's you know it, it doesn't it doesn't work out typically the way that uh it seems to work for these L actors groups people who are using social media so effectively and my question is what makes social media different and i i have two thoughts here one is that the idea which you mentioned a few minutes ago uh, what Donald Trump was doing on social media, basically focus grouping messages. And it's very easy to do that if you have a big Twitter audience, you have a big Facebook audience, you just keep churning stuff out and see what people respond to. And, mm -hmm. you know, as long as you don't offend everybody, you can kind of adjust your, uh, your message as you go along. And and the other thing is that there's sort of a almost a telemarketing aspect to it in the sense that like if you reach enough people, even if you only hit on like one percent of the audience that sees your stuff, that's still a big number of people, and then they can kind of go out and be your messengers in other you know other ways uh so i wonder like are you know if those are the the things that kind of set social media apart from traditional propaganda or if there are other aspects uh and you know you can get into uh, this is where i kind of get lost but you know i'm sure there are elements like you know of of psychology at play here and why mm -hmm. social media is so effective in reaching people and uh you know w we can talk about uh, those things as well sure uh well i'll start with one of my favorite favorite historic examples of propaganda which i just stumbled across in the process of researching the book you know it's it's about a year into world war ii uh goebbels has his propaganda ministry that's employing something like a, a thousand nazis full-time they know uh, war against Britain is not going to be short, so they shift more and more to uh, propagating it via the airwaves. They have something like eight or ten hours of radio programming each day specifically directed toward British listeners. And because there's this uh, desire in the like Nazi strategic planners, maybe they can get the Irish to rise up and, uh, you know, present a new threat to Britain's flank. They also go out of their way to find Gallic speakers, which is tough to do. It's tough to do in Germany even before the war, but now they have to, they have to find enough trained Gallic speakers who are also willing to help out the Nazis. 
and program an hour or so a day directed specifically at Ireland in the Gaelic language to just try to get that tiny group of uh, Irish partisans who might be interested in uh, pushing for a full independence. Yeah, interesting. Now, nothing ever came of it. But think about what an immense investment of resources that was. You also typically, like then, you couldn't record these. Uh, well, you, I, I guess you could record them, but like you. It, it's uh, a lot easier to propagate now. Right, right, right. I mean, right. It, oh, sorry. Know, if if, if you were a listener, to... you had to be listening contemporaneously. Right, right. That's it. Okay. So okay. it's just this huge investment of resources for virtually no return. Compare that to today. ISIS could broadcast these messages uh, pushed by this huge botnet, uh, thousands of distinct media releases a month, and anyone who was interested could find them very easily and make contact with a recruiter just as easily. There's The only comparison between like old-fashioned propaganda and today is that one is hilariously more effective than the other. Uh, it becomes possible for the first time to pick out just maybe three or four uh, sympathetic people you know, in a city of millions and make contact with them and then uh, groom them to your cause. The domestic political campaign ex uh, parallel to this is what Brad Parscale did with the Trump campaign, where... Uh, he, he's on record saying, marveling, you know, I'm, I'm putting every bit of money I can in targeted Facebook ads because without doing a big expensive media buy, I can hit those four undecided voters in that podunk Florida, central Florida town. So that's one of the big advantages, this, this micro targeting, which you never had before. Uh, but then the other thing that really makes social media distinct is the speed of it you even as a small account even as someone with virtually no followers you can broadcast a message and assuming you get a little bit of attention that can snowball so quickly that quite quickly uh you draw the eyeballs of millions and then if your message is compelling enough and you're doing it the right way, you can hijack the conventional media cycle, which means then you're going to filter into radio and TV and hit another audience that isn't necessarily online. Something we try to emphasize a lot is that, uh, no, not everyone's on Twitter, but all journalists are. Something like 97% of journalists use Twitter, and they can't really stay off it. It's helpful for them, but it also basically pollutes their minds like it does everyone who's on it because you think the things are that are trending there are of national salience and you will almost invariably weave them into your coverage of an event that's a really good point i think that's um when you talk about the days of traditional propaganda you know radio propaganda or leaflets or whatever um the mainstream media doesn't really play into it, right? Uh, like, there, there's there's no news anchor who's going to listen to, like, Tokyo Rose and then go on air and repeat what she said yeah. as fact, basically, for his viewers. And yet, 
the same stuff is happening on Twitter, uh, especially, or on Facebook or wherever, and you have, you know, it, it's driving news coverage in a way that, like, you, you would never think that, that the news media would be credulous enough to, to sort of play along with it in any other format. And yet, yeah. and yet when it's on social media, it sort of uh, just just hits the right spot, I guess, for them. They're credulous, but also it, it helps them. And I, I know we're, we're jumping all around examples. Um, I hope, uh, let's focus on the concepts. And also, this might give you an idea of what it was like to write the damn book. Because you think of one thing, and then it's like, <laughs> is it ISIS? Is it, is it Trump? Is right, it, right. Is, so, it, a, is a it a war 200 years ago? Um, but, but a great example here is the execution of James Foley, which you might remember in August 2014. It's this uh, short clip uh James Foley's murdered on camera by uh the jihadist known as Jihad John I think Jihadi John Jihadi yeah, John I think so, yeah. And you know the imagery there was so stark because uh Foley's dressed in a Guantanamo orange jumpsuit Jihadi John's in all black it's a stark Syrian desert he has a knife uh we find out later Foley was probably put through like a dozen mock executions because they were trying to get the most aesthetics shot. Right. But something unique in that clip is that they actually cut to black for the the execution. You don't you don't really see blood. And that was so it could basically be rated PG-13. And it initially you had media posting the full clip. Right. They very they very yeah. quickly stopped that because they realized, like, holy shit, we are spreading the yeah, enemy's right, message. Right. But what they did instead, like, I remember this this like full page uh, Daily Beast article where they just had the picture of Foley in the desert with Jihadi John over him. Yeah. And that accomplished so, exactly the same thing. exactly the same aesthetic message. Right. Um. So it's when you think about it, this kind of modern propaganda ties in really well to the commercial incentives of these big media companies. But not only that, but there can be kind of a, a virtuous cycle because one media company that always made sure to feature ISIS releases was Breitbart. Because... Of course. <laughs> yeah, no, it, 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 course. it was actually a mutually beneficial relationship. Sure. Yeah. It meant that ISIS could continue to terrorize a portion of the American electorate who were sure that, you know, jihadists were going to ambush them on the way to Burger King. And uh, meanwhile, Breitbart could rake in the big sure, bucks from that same group. All this free content from, you know, a content provider. Basically. Yeah. And it, and it was part of that virtuous cycle, which explained why uh, Pew did some polling in September 2014, right after the Foley video. More Americans were scared of terrorism in 2014 than they were in the immediate aftermath of 9-11. It was essentially one viral video, yeah. which brought, at least for a little bit, that same sense of fear uh, that had once been accomplished through this absurdly complex operation that had killed 3,000 Americans. Is most of this happening on Twitter? I, I, I'm, I'm biased here because Twitter is the, the social media site that I use the most often. Yeah, I'm biased it's too. It's the one it's that tough. I'm most inclined to think is a toxic cesspool, uh, and yet that I use most often. I, I don't use Facebook very much at all. 
Um, and I don't like Instagram and stuff. I'm, I'm not even on, you know, a lot of these other things. Um, where, where is this happening most frequently now? And where, I, I mean, I guess Trump, the Trump phenomenon by itself sort of skews it toward Twitter. Uh, but, you know, ha, has that changed over time? Like, you know, do we see Facebook becoming more of a factor? And you, you, you know, I, I think you talk in the book about the, uh, about Myanmar and the, the Rohingya massacre, which was fueled by a lot of very toxic Facebook content uh, directed at the Rohingya. Um, and there are, you know, there are other examples, but, but I'm wondering, you know, it, it, I, not to just point a finger at one site sure. and say, you are the problem. Uh, but you know, is there one that's worse than the rest and has that changed, you know, in uh, over time or has it remained relatively stable? Sure. I think there's some continuity between the three and actually I'll, I'll, I'll try to go through Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube here. But first, a point about the Rohingya um, and about Southeast Asia more generally. Facebook has a disproportionate impact there because it largely is the Internet. Because these Internet-using populations are a bit later uh, to adopt social media. And because Facebook tries so hard to offer cheap or free access to their platform. And because they're a platform from which you can access articles without ever leaving the app. They are the internet. Interesting. So when we talk, say, about the Facebook's role in the Rohingya genocide, that's because they are virtually the only social media provider there. Hmm. But if we pull back and look at the United States, I think Twitter is most influential, not because uh, all Americans use it, but because, as we discussed, no, it, it's is, it is the I news mean, They're cycle. constantly kind of struggling to get better numbers, I mean, <clears throat> usage numbers. They're, they're really... You know, they've lagged behind on that. But, yeah. you know, there are so many power users, basically, in, in this context, meaning journalists and, you know, politicians mostly. Uh, it it kind of has an impact beyond its its yeah. actual reach. So, so Twitter is the direct artery to the beating manic heart of the modern American <laughs> politics. That's Twitter for you. YouTube, meanwhile, is... Um, that's more where you go when you want to be radicalized, when you want to be indoctrinated. Hmm. Back in the day, uh, that was the uh, Al-Alaki. Al oh, yeah, Anwar Al-Alaki, yeah. Al-Alaki, yeah. yeah. From AQAP, sure. Yeah, yeah. Uh, back in the day, it was people getting radicalized by Al-Alaki. Sure, his sermons were, were on YouTube. Yeah. yeah, and by the way, his sermons were on YouTube until 2017, because, uh, maybe we can get into this later, but because of terms of service, uh, it, it was ambiguous when his sermons were direct causes, calls to violence, and he never showed violence in his sermons. So YouTube made the reasonable argument that there was no way they could take them down. But uh, ter terrorism studies have shown that he had a huge influence over now generations of lone wolves and terrorists who especially strike the West. Anyway, that was then. Now it's all the red pill shit. It's the alt-right. It's all that. Again, YouTube is where you go when you're already taking your first steps down the path, and then you get sucked into it. And then the, the YouTube algorithm did then, and still does, serve you up a steady stream of content. 
you know, you, you start with Jordan Peterson and then sure, the intellectual dark web. Yeah. And then that yeah, yeah. That, that's how all those folks make their on. But you're right. Yeah, you're right. I mean, there's <laughs> sort of the, the you watch the video and you think, wow, this is this is cool. This really appeals to me for some reason. And then, you know, YouTube helpfully gives you that list of suggestions, you know, things you might like yep. uh, right on the side there. So you can yep. just, you know, go on as long as you want. And Facebook, I think, is actually the most pernicious of these three, mainly because 90% of Americans have a Facebook account. Now it's uh, disproportionately older Americans who are using it as their primary source of news. Um, but Facebook is also a closed system in contrast to Twitter. So if you're a reasonably informed researcher, it, there's it's very difficult to see like what a more credulous American is being exposed to. What we know anecdotally is that uh, Facebook is a, the primary environment through which these falsehoods spread. Facebook was the ground on which the, the fake news uh, titans made their money in the lead up to the 2016 election. And, you know, Facebook has been the cash cow for these organizations like Breitbart and media that go far, far, farther right. Um, to give a personal example, I, I haven't figured out a, a good way to write about this, but for two years now, I've been part of a little Facebook group that just says something like, uh, the group's called like Defend Israel. And it just has a picture of like the Israeli flag. But all the group does is like in broken English post like really fake stories about like, you know, 10,000 Muslims like raped uh, in this like one European city. Yeah. And they'll do this yeah. like four or five times a day. I suspect it's run maybe maybe by uh someone with ties to the russian internet research agency maybe another dark money group but uh there's just a few hundred members almost all of them are old or have pic like old profile pictures and you know you, you'll, you'll post this thing about like the rape ug rape, rape ugs are coming for you and then the the old folks will all be like yeah and it's like we love israel and even then I click on some of these accounts and I'm almost sure that they're sock puppet accounts because they don't seem quite real, but others are real. So it's basically these groups of our, our most vulnerable and credulous who get drawn in and like they're getting radicalized in their own way. But yeah. this is this is very far from the public view. And this isn't something that you can study unless you just happen to fall into it. And because Facebook has, uh, what, like 2.3 billion users, they can't study it either. Right. It's too big. And, and, and yeah, you're, I mean, the system is much different than Twitter. It's, uh, yeah, and, you and, see, Facebook is much more kind of, you only have to see what you want to see. And it's hard if you want to see what other people are seeing. It's, it's hard to, to even go about doing that because of the way they have it structured. Yeah. And, and, um, so, so I realize I use the term sock puppet. There's been a lot of confusion here, especially now, because, you know... If, yeah, if I want to talk about that, actually, but go ahead. This sure, sure. Us, this will lead into my next question. So, 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 you know, so, you know, if you're if you're on Twitter and, I don't know, you, you supported Hillary Clinton... Oh, wait. No, no, you, you didn't support Hillary Clinton, then you got called a Russian bot. That, that might be introduction to some of your readers hearing these terms. Anyway, <laughs> uh, a bot 
is a script that's running a social media account. The user can step in periodically, but usually it's the script. It's just a dumb account that's being used to amplify certain messages to try to game the algorithms of these social media platforms. A sock puppet is when you've made a kind of convincing persona and have laid out enough of a fake life that when you step into it, uh, it seems like the real deal. And the problem with these sock puppet accounts is that especially if there's never been any automation involved in using them, it's essentially impossible for the social media platforms to detect, which is why in the Defend Israel example, I don't think uh, Facebook anytime soon would find a group like this because why would they? There are no red flags to set it off. And I think little influence operations like this are scattered across the system. Actually, give give you another example, this one, which is linked to Israel. I'm also part of a uh, mobile app called act.il. And uh, I, I joined it a year and a half ago. It's funded by a few American-Israeli uh, organizations, including Sheldon Adelson's like Dark Money Fund. Anyway, you go on this app, you sign up, and you start getting missions for points where it's like, hey, express your love for Israel. Uh, go so to this. It's like gamified yeah, yeah. propaganda, basically. It's like, hey, go uh, go to this discussion thread and uh, type in, uh, like, like Conan O'Brien went to Israel like a year ago. And one of the missions that popped up was show Conan a great time. Thank him for coming. You know, how do you trace that? Right. Because it, it's sincere users and sincere accounts. Right, right. And yet they're being directed yeah. by... I mean, they're anyway, being turned into instruments. That, that's an illustration of the mechanics of these influence operations and how tough it can be sometimes to trace them. So, uh, yeah, this this does lead me then what I was going to talk about next, which is, a, you know, there's a couple of recent developments or cases that I wanted to ask you about. One of them is, uh, you know, Twitter just released like millions of tweets, I guess, and a huge archive of uh, Iranian and Russian trolling, basically. I mean, that, that seemed to have been directed. You mentioned the, the research, the, the Internet Russian research, research agency. Internet research agency, right. Uh, and there seems to be a, a, another it's kind of smaller and maybe less professionalized Iranian operation uh, where, you know, I mean, I, it's unclear how it works, but, you know, they, they get a, a bunch of accounts and some of them might be bots, some of them might be sock puppets, some of them might be genuine people, either paid or just kind of, you know, conned into doing it, who push the message, right? I mean, their, their, their job is to kind of swamp the swamp Twitter with, with whatever the, the message is. And the other example, I, I think, uh, that's especially prevalent now around the uh, Jamal Khashoggi case um, is the Saudi. There's there's an obvious Saudi operation to do the same things. Yeah, uh, I, I always joke that it's <clears throat> the the Center for Combating Extremism, that thing that Donald Trump and King Salman started when they pawed the orb very creepily you know, yeah. uh, last year. I don't know if that's really where they do it. It wouldn't surprise me because they had those pictures of just a bunch of people sitting at a desk, presumably online. Yeah. And and it wouldn't surprise me at all if most of them, their job was to do, you know, Saudi puff propaganda on social media. But you see it, you know, every time uh, 
somebody with a big Twitter following or, you know, somebody with a with a high profile tweets something about the Saudis, negative about the Saudis, uh, about uh, the, especially recently about the Khashoggi case, they're just swarmed. Their, their replies are swarmed with people, uh, all of whom clearly have either talk if they don't have a script outright they have talking points uh and they're you know hammering away at those talking points is this something that um you know is is being done more and more by governments uh is there a u.s operation that you know nobody knows about or maybe you know we do know about but hasn't been reported on but you know how much of this is sort of moving into a, a a place that I think is very troubling where this is just sort of official kind of form this is just kind of the the way that governments are going to operate from you know from now on they're going to flood Twitter and Facebook with and and you know maybe YouTube with memes and yeah. videos and content to to deliver mess unfiltered messages that that you know, are, let's say less than truthful, maybe in, in yeah. those cases. <clears throat> so this is a huge topic. Uh, first off, the answer is yes. All governments are going to do this. Uh, it's unclear because U.S. is subject to Freedom of Information Act and a lot of the agencies. There are very specific uh, anti-propaganda laws as it regards American agencies uh, broadcasting to Americans. It's unclear what form that will take in the United States. But in general, all governments are going to do this, and they kind of have to do this. Um, I think it would be easiest, if you don't mind, to start talking about the 2016 election and Russia. Sure. Um, because this is really, the Russians were the pioneers here. But I know people on the left are sick of hearing about the Russia thing, and I've I've you know I've I've started reading a lot of revisionist articles or you know folks say it doesn't really matter. I want to lay out basically what lines of effort mattered and what didn't, because there's again there's so much confusion here. First off, it wasn't the Russian intelligence agencies that were doing much of the most of this. When I say the Russian internet research agency it's useful to think of it as a marketing firm basically the ira is one and there are a bunch of others that are run by kremlin cronies and then bid for contracts for what kind of looks like marketing but it's like propaganda operations but it's not you know it's not all being run like by intelligence services to be clear what the ira did was use facebook and twitter to purchase directed advertising. This was a super funny initiative that led has led to tons of like amazing examples of, um, oh, my favorite is an image of, of Jesus and Satan arm wrestling. And then it's just like, like click here to make sure Jesus wins. And it's like a redirect to like the Trump page. <laughs> anyway, it was bought by Russia. <laughs> it rules. There are dozens of these. But... Uh, most of them got engagement like below a thousand clicks total. This was an extremely funny thing that had basically no bearing on the election. Of course, people on the left have then said, you know, this means the Russian influence operation didn't have an effect. Not so. That's one category. The next category are the, the Russian bots, which we're all familiar because I think we've all been called Russian bots at one point or another. 
that was the you know twitter's nine million messages uh that was a more directed observate uh operation that lasted for about two years as the russians were trying to bolster uh trump's campaign and degrade clinton's they had a an impact but those russian bots we now know probably only accounted for five or ten percent of the automated voices that were ardently pro-trump and anti-clinton on election day they joined a much louder chorus of basically trump's grassroots movement who were is sophisticated at building botnets and more driven because it wasn't their job they just wanted to do this that's also probably didn't turn the course of an election what i think turned the course of the election uh but it will always be up for debate is wikileaks but why uh so some russian hackers break into the emails of the democratic national committee then they break into the personal email of john podesta they try and fail to launder these emails through their own wikileaks clone and then they decide, like, holy shit, we can just contact Julia Assange and give him all this stuff. And they do. Assange loves it. Assange leaks it. It's still unclear if he knew it was the Russian intelligence services. He didn't have to know. In fact, he arguably had a real incentive not to investigate that. But he was given a great source of information, which he could use to command the most important asset online, which is attention. Well, what was in the WikiLeaks disclosures? Really, I this is also controversial, but really not all that much that was any worse than most any political campaign, if you've worked on it. There was no smoking gun, but that didn't matter, as there is a steady drumbeat of WikiLeaks releases. Most Americans never read them, never had any interest in reading them, but they knew that WikiLeaks was out there and was a thing on uh, Facebook. They, they've since wiped this report from their uh, archives. But on Facebook, uh, they would release a monthly report of uh, the most discussed topics on the platform. Well, in October, the first most discussed topic was Halloween. The third was the World Series, uh, but the second was WikiLeaks. That's how pervasive this was. And it was this giant fake news ecosystem that then used WikiLeaks, which was like this black box it was like the perfect hook if you're writing a fake story. You know, uh, WikiLeaks shows it. I don't know, you name it. Like the, the crazy, like, spirit cooking, blood and semen, Pizzagate, <laughs> right, right. all this shit. Right. All that shit was because WikiLeaks was the perfect way to write any sort of article you wanted. And um, people who study political communications are coming to the conclusion now, this constant sore that was WikiLeaks probably diminished Clinton's trustworthiness enough. It was already pretty damn low, but it moved her even further down and probably contributed to the, um, I'm sorry, 87,000 vote margin, 60 or 80,000 vote margin yeah, like by that. which Trump won. Right. That is where like the Russian influence operation had the most effect. But you should just understand that they were pursuing all of these lines of effort simultaneously. That's what the Russian thing is. Yeah. But then this Russian operation provides the perfect base from which other countries are now uh, copying different elements. 
you know, I'm not going to say his name right, but uh, Khashoggi, uh, the Khashoggi thing now, uh, you know, it's being pushed by this like aggressive army of Twitter bots. Um, they're saying, you know, Saudi did nothing wrong. But a year before that, something that I, I tried to put in the book, but there just wasn't space. A year before that, you'll remember in um, mid-2017, uh, Qatar was blockaded by, sure. the, by the Gulf. Sure, yeah. There's strong evidence there that they had, UAE and Saudi had botnets that they'd set up in advance to all push the same hashtag around, uh, you know, outrage against Qatar and... Uh, pushing for blockade and even further actions. And if you'll recall, the origins of that blockade, the, the reason why it was imposed, was because of a huge controversy over something that a Qatari state broadcaster had put out. But the broadcaster was hacked. So, so right. sorry, sorry if I'm not speech. putting this... No, it was a speech by the emir that, that um, they apparently hacked into the... the cuttery broadcaster and uh put this fake speech where the emir talked about uh you know supporting islamist groups and being friendly with iran and kind of said some bad things about the saudis and it was it was you know uh it's it he does not seem to have made this speech uh, but they kind of got it into the system, and then the the Qatari media reported it. Yeah, and then they were they justified their blockade uh, by referring to the speech. Right. So we know now that this was a hack made to incite this moment, which was then propelled to instant virality by this this army of botnets and sock puppets that. Uh, Gulf who were like in place, yeah, ready to go. Okay, they were ready yeah. to go, Jeez. and you know that that ended in the blockade. But we also, you know, I've read reports now that Saudi wanted to push it to armed conflict. Yeah, they were. I mean, there there were. There's pretty good evidence at this point that they wanted to uh, foment a coup in Qatar and put a put somebody who was friendlier. It's still in the cuttery kind of distant ruling family, but friendlier to Saudi interests uh, yeah. would have put him on the throne. It, it, anyway, th that's an example of how these Russian tactics can be used in a, a different situation, also to accomplish these geopolitical ends. So this is good. You already brought up Russia, and this kind of leads me into... I have two more questions. Um, the first one is, uh, as you said, and as... I kind of primed the pump here because we talked about this before we started recording. But, uh, you know, there are there are a lot of people on the left, and I, I understand where they're coming from, who uh, kind of just tune out the Russia story from 2016 because they, they feel like it's been used as a crutch or an excuse uh, to, to avoid talking about the things you know the policy issues with the democratic party or particular issues with hillary clinton uh and i i understand that i i, I empathize with that but I, I do think this is still an important part of the story that 
uh, the left is going to have to grapple with at some point because it's not just about 2016. It's about winning elections in the future. It's about, uh, you know, how do you deal with something that threatens to undermine uh, the political system? We've kind of moved away from the uh, the violent aspect of this, but I think it's, you know, uh, important to uh, to talk about the political end. Well, that's why it's called like war. There you go, like war. <laughs> I, uh, I don't think that one's gonna stick but, yeah well you know um <laughs> it's worth a shot you know branding hashtag uh but uh, you know i think uh you know it's about overcoming something that really threatens to undermine the electoral system period if for you know for every election to come and is isn't just something that can be weaponized by russia or by you know now the the trump administration is claiming that China is meddling in elections, and you know there, there's the Saudis and the Iranians and, and these other actors, but it's something that can be weaponized by any American. And maybe you know, I asked you what, what's it going to look like in the United States. Maybe the the thing it's going to look like in the United States isn't the government doing it. It's going to be Sheldon Adelson doing it, or the Mercers doing it, or the Koch brothers doing it. Like all these billionaires who uh, have a very vested interest in rigging the political system are are going to be able to pay for operations to to twist the. Uh, the narrative through social media like this. So it's something that I think people on the left are, are, are going to have to grapple with. And I, maybe I'm already making the argument, but I want to know how you make the case to people who have tuned out a lot of this stuff because of Russiagate, because they're sick of Russiagate. How do you, you make the argument to them that this is still something that you need to be worried about? Well, you just made the argument real, okay. real damn well. Um, a few things. Um, because, yeah, I've, I found the conversation about a lot of this pretty distressing. Um, so the first thing is that a lot of Clintonites, especially at the beginning, especially when everyone was in pretty much a state of shock, did use the Russia thing as a cudgel. To basically say, you know, no, Sanders wouldn't have won. No, your ideas still aren't legitimate. Clinton had a good platform. It was just this uh, Russian influence operation that kept her from going over the edge. I mean, that's bullshit. Like, there were serious problems with the campaign's strategic decisions. It's becoming evident now as we look at the political moment that uh, I think it was time for the Democratic Party to embrace bolder domestic policies. But it's also true. I've seen uh, a lot of arguments on the left say that, you know, maybe Russia did interfere in the election. But uh, so what? We interfered in a lot of elections. Yeah, yeah, we totally did. I'm not going to defend 50 years of fucked up American foreign policy. But you can't, you also can't suffer in the present for something that you had nothing to do with. You know, I, I think we have to realize that even if our country deserved it, especially like us younger folks, didn't deserve to have our political process and our democratic expression against Trump hijacked by a foreign country. It's so messed up because, yeah, three million more Americans did choose Clinton. Uh, milk toast as she was. Three million more Americans chose her over Trump, right. and their voices are drowned out, not 
by even a, a, a ghoulish mix of U.S. corporate actors, but by uh, operations administered by foreign intelligence agencies and then their proxies. And even if you're thinking, all right, well, the 2016 election, this, this, it has led to a political moment where we can push things in a way more progressive direction than we might have otherwise. Even if you can see some of the benefit from 2016, if you're looking forward, things are only going to get worse. Um, the, the strategy of Russia and now probably increasingly it will be Saudi too, is uh, they realize that no Democrat is going to be in favor of continuing the alliance. The goal of all these actors isn't really like to, to keep Trump in power, is to keep the U.S. in a point of, uh, of stasis, of disorder, of uh, basically political gridlock to the point where you can't get anything done. And you have these like petty Trumpists continuing to, to be in power. Anyway, we need to understand that they're going to try harder in the next election. And they're going to do it by more sophisticated means, increasing reliance on, on sock puppets or even uh, these sorts of uh, bots that are administered by machine intelligences so they can look like real people. Uh, and we all together have a vested interest in ensuring that that doesn't happen. It's, um, yeah, I mean, I, I think uh, you you make a point that I've, I've made before that I, you know, I, I think getting Trump elected was sort of the, like, icing on the cake in a sense. I mean, it was like the thing beyond our wildest dreams. Well, the, the goal was more to create discord or to to kind of enhance the discord that was already there mm -hmm. even if clinton had won a lot of the operations that that went on during the campaign would have still been relevant because they would have created this you know group of people you know or, or or kind of bolstered this group of people that are just inclined to would have been inclined to uh, you know, really despise her and, and, you know, continue to kind of grate against her. I, I Actually, I think they would have been inclined a step further. Um, when I started writing the book, I and everyone in Washington thought we knew how the election was going to pan out. I was really worried about the Russian influence operations component back in really starting in August. I was tracking on this issue. And really, I assume a lot of the country was too. That was one of many notions I was disabused of after the election. Hmm. But anyway, I thought for sure Clinton had it in the bag. So what I was super worried about, and hinted at this a little bit in the uh, cover story I did for The Atlantic on this topic in November 2016, what I was really worried about was the political movements that would happen after Clinton's election. As Trump at the top would say this election was illegitimate. And if you thought that the, say, the Russian bot and sock puppet infiltration and political discourse had been bad in the election, imagine if Moscow had seen an opportunity to help foment widespread armed uprisings by some of these far-right militias against U.S. state authorities. It would be an incredible opportunity. I think they would have leapt on it in an instant. I think that was what they intended. 
I think the ideal outcome for everybody, including Trump, was Trump was going to lose, Trump was going to start Trump TV. And then the Russians would have this incredible base of furious um, disenchanted right-wingers who would be pushed more and more into like basically the, the Proud Boys groups on steroids. Um, so the election was really a surprise to everyone. Yeah. But I, I think yeah. political violence was the intent. Mm. And okay. things if things had turned out differently, we'd be there now. Is there, um, and I, I don't want to spend much time on this, but is there a, a concern that some of these operations could um, I- infiltrate kind of more left-wing spaces, not to hijack them necessarily even, but even just to discredit them. Like you put somebody out there who, you know, uses a seemingly lefty-sounding hashtag but spouts, you know, crazy shit to, uh, you know, make everybody sound nuts and, and you know, weaken, weaken that movement. Is there a risk? Is there a concern about that too? So one of my huge concerns now um, and I actually, I tried to sell a piece on this a few months ago, but, uh, got distracted by the book. Um, one of my biggest concerns is that right after the election, we're going to see extremely obvious, uh, Russian accounts throwing in for the farther, farthest left, but not fringe candidate. They'll throw in for Sanders and Warren, say they'll do it in a really obvious way. So then a story immediately becomes, you know, oh, look who Russia is supporting in the right. next election. Right. Then that gives, uh, you know, centrists in the Democratic Party that perfect opening to discredit and start all over again. This this name calling over the Russian thing that I mean, when you think about it, we're getting pretty dangerously close to like four dimensional chess. Sure. But, but the, if, I mean, if the you're running to divide. Yeah. The. The opposition to Trump and, and yeah, split it up along lines and and I I think we should you know. absolutely be cognizant of that because if you were running an influence operation intending to keep Trump in power, you would absolutely throw in vocally for the farther left candidate, throw Democrats into disunion, then get behind Trump in the general. All right, here's where we get to the hard part, I guess. I don't know, it's like at the tail end of the interview, so I don't want you know. Tell me if there's nothing <coughs> to do here. Uh, but. What what's the I mean what are some possible solutions I, mean, I thought about some of these things like you know there's there's responding to the trolls which seems like a sucker's game because you're never gonna out you're never gonna, you're never gonna have a louder voice than these operations do uh, you know there's uh, sort of trying to get the media to stop taking the bait but that seems like Again, kind of a sucker's game because there's always going to be a Breitbart that isn't really taking the bait. They know exactly what they're doing, but yeah. they're going to grab onto it and they're going to force it into the into the you know mainstream media coverage. Uh, you know, there's the notion of increasing cybersecurity. You know, tell John Podesta not to click on the fucking link in the phishing email so that they can't hack his you know hack his account. Uh, but that's all it takes is one idiot, you know, to fail and you're, you know, you're stuck in the, the, the problem, you got the problem anyway. Um, there's notions of, 
you know, censoring or relying on the social media sites to police themselves. There's the idea of boycotting, which again, you know, I don't think is going to happen. Um, we're, we're addicted, man. Yeah, exactly. So what, I mean, what do you do? And the other thing I thought about, and this is, uh, you know, there was just a case uh, yesterday, in fact, in Crimea of a, a kid who shot up his college and killed, you know, I, I don't know what the casualty count is now, but upwards of like 20 people and maybe, maybe more than that at this point. Um, and Russian authorities have blamed that, and we're, I guess we're getting back into violence now, but have blamed it on uh, isolation, this, this phenomenon that, you know, the more connected you are online, the more alone or isolated you can feel, mm. and then the more susceptible you are to the messages of whatever, whether it's the Proud Boys or the alt-right or the... Uh, ISIS or whatever, whatever group, uh, you're more susceptible to either, you know, attaching yourself to something like that or to just kind of developing a sort of pathology of, you know, uh, everybody's, uh, th there's something wrong with society and I have to go kill people because, you know, it's all fucked up. Um, you know, so there's the idea of not looking at the content or not coming at it from that end but looking at the people who are susceptible to the content and trying to address it on that end. Uh, I, you know, what, what are your thoughts here? Like, what, what, what can you do? All right. Let's put this in uh, three categories. Government, social media companies, and everyone else. Uh, I hesitate to prescribe much for government to do right now because, um, frankly... The U.S. government has a vested interest in not doing very much in this. You see this in the fact that the president, Donald Trump, uh, took over a year and a half to have his first cabinet-level meeting on information security. And even then, it was almost entirely about infrastructural election cybersecurity. If you study uh, U.S. bureaucracy to any degree, you know... Consciously or not, the president sets the priorities for the whole of government. He's making sure this isn't a priority. And when I've spoken to uh, people in military or State Department on these issues, it's often like almost in hushed tones because it's a little bit verboten for you to speak honestly about the extent of these influence operations because they invariably cast doubt on the president's democratic mandate. And you see this too in... Um, uh, the president's recent speech or vice president's recent speech and rhetoric on China uh, where they conflate China hacking with an information operation. All of this is intended to cloud, muddy the waters. We can't trust them to do anything in the short term. We need to think, everyone, no matter how progressive you are, if you believe U.S. government should function, we do need to start thinking about the systems we have in place. And that's a longer term project. <coughs> Excuse me. Unfortunately, I think the entities with the most power who can save us are the social media companies. This isn't a great outcome to be beholden to a small number of Silicon Valley oligarchs to police our political reality, um, but that is where we are. Uh, Facebook, Twitter, and Google all have the resources to invest much more in content moderation. They also have... I think uh, they have to be willing to be a little bit more arbitrary in some of their policing. 
you know, Alex Jones was kicked off of Twitter and all these other platforms, but it took years when right. he was dancing on the line. Right. A year and a half ago, it was Richard Spencer who was still on Twitter because he'd say, oh, I was just obeying your terms of service. See, there, if, if you're a provocative online far-right media personality, you figure out a good way to toe the line. So you come just close but never cross over. And I think in those edge cases, when these companies realize that this is speech that is doing systemic harm to the U.S. political system and is uh, fomenting these like institutional bigotries, particularly against Muslim Americans that are going to last for a generation, you have to be willing to just pull the plug, say, you know, fuck it, I'm in charge. Don't is do that there, often. Isn't there a concern, though, that... Uh, oh, there's a huge concern in yeah, everything I just said. I, I mean, you know, they're going to they're gonna look at a group that says we should nationalize Facebook, which isn't really offensive, but the, it's bad for Facebook. Or they're going to say we should nationalize the Internet. And, you know, they're going to look at a group like that that's on the left and say, oh, that's that's bad. we got to get rid of that, too. Like, if they're going to... The more arbitrary they get, it seems to me, the, the greater the risk that they're going to start censoring left voices because that's in their interest yeah that's yeah there's a huge danger there first off the the corporate nightmare of facebook censoring conversation about facebook i think about a lot but it's important to remember that basically everyone who works at that company is an idealistic 20 or 30 something they have tunnel vision certainly um they don't think about social or economic issues the way they should but they aren't that evil we're decades i think from reckoning with that and you have to worry about the more immediate adversary um to your other point though these companies do sometimes serve uh the powerful a great example was uh the height of the family separation debate in june splinter leaks the email of uh stephen miller on twitter Anyone who's sharing that phone number gets immediately banned for doxing or immediately suspended for doxing. Then Splinter gets suspended for doxing. Then in at least one case, someone who was talking about the suspensions got suspended as well. That was an example of Twitter overreacting to serve the powerful. Right. And that's something I think we need to lobby as aggressively as we can for them not to do it. Because the vast majority, actually basically unilaterally, um, Employees at these companies were strongly against family separation. That was something where they should have been more vocal and actually use their platforms uh, in a meaningful way to help subvert it. Um, so yeah, honestly, be more arbitrary in the content moderation insofar as you can protect Americans. But then also something that I think they should do, uh, which also edges a little bit towards censorship, is when, a, when something is going viral, through the system, when it's picking up rapid momentum, I'm increasingly thinking there needs to be there need to be systems in place to slow the brakes on it, to not stop it, but to basically, uh, you know, like if something moves through water and slows a little bit, hmm. to try to uh, halt that bit of information just long enough so that other countervailing voices get a chance to weigh in. Because what makes social media so dangerous is that something that's baldly false will speed through the system while any fact check or any knowledgeable voice that offers a countering view is uh, uh, essentially ignored. So that's something they should invest more in. 
Um, but fine. Uh, go ahead. Well, okay. <clears throat> so then, the what follows from that is how do we get them to do that? Because clearly the incentive isn't there right now, and and these are big corporations. I mean, they're not going to move unless they have a reason to move. So how do you how do you get them to to do that? By having conversations like this, by drawing increasing attention and investigatory resources um, to the issues where uh, these platforms are having catastrophic impacts on society. There we can go back to the uh, Rohingya. We can go to India, where viral WhatsApp rumors have led to over a dozen lynchings in the last year where they, they think a stranger in a village is a child predator or something, and then they, through mob violence, kill him. Uh, by each of us just emphasizing and not being, not hesitating to, to speak up and pressure these companies, I think we can do a lot of good. And that entails us thinking a little bit more about these companies, not just as U.S. American corporations, but also as political entities in which we're a constituents we're not constituents in the same way we're constituents of countries because they're using us to make bukus of money um but we have to realize that our politics is affected by these platforms they're not purely corporations they also have political responsibilities and we should pressure them accordingly i think that's where the most inroads can be made towards solving these problems and Honestly, even in the course of time I was writing the book, it was night and day for how Facebook approached an issue like the Russian influence campaign. Right after the election, it was like the, the Kubler-Ross like stages of grief. Right after the election, <laughs> Mark Zuckerberg says, oh, it's a crazy idea. We had anything to do right. with the election. Right. Where a month prior, they'd been selling to anyone who was willing yeah. to buy, you know, we can change elections. That was their business yeah. model. Yeah, I mean, they were embedding people with <laughs> campaigns, right? Yeah, to, yeah. To, yeah. But just in the course of that year, uh, you know, Facebook completely reorganized its uh, structure. It built tons of new teams. It poured tens of millions of dollars into this. Um, we should understand that some moves are being made and that influence campaigns that worked before won't work, necessarily work again. But that, there's one more thing to talk about, and that's us. What can we do? Um, honestly, we have the least power in this system. Something that I stress in the book, though, is to think about information and to think about, uh, these viral bits of misinformation as, uh, kind of the same way you might approach public health. Because... A bit of false information injected into the system can spread so rapidly and incite people to violence or affect their minds in ways that will lead them to violence in the future. Um, it's there are a lot of parallels to say like viral spread, um, and it's important to realize too that in your peer group, I, I know most folks listening to this are pretty pretty savvy internet users. You're not going to fall for an obvious bit of fake news or whatever. But if anyone in your peer group is, say, a little bit more credulous and does uh, believe these things and forward them, over time, whether you realize it consciously or not, 
your your resistance to this bit of information is worn down is more and more you see this these uh, particular piece spread through the system an example here uh, i think everyone remembers is pope francis endorses donald trump for president you know is dumb is really stupid most right. people didn't believe it at right. first but it was so interesting that many people shared it and then people who were initially resistant to it saw it being shared by more and more of their friend group so then they were more likely to believe it one reason they're more likely to believe it over 60 percent of the links shared on facebook are never clicked on it's only the title which the you see yeah. yeah and then uh you know as they were more inclined to believe it they forwarded it on so that dumb story was the most shared bit of news in the 2016 election jesus you need to be aware of that just to understand that you're only as protected against this stuff is the, the weakest link in your system so in my case uh i'm from rural georgia uh i went to school with people who wound up in all sorts of different places of, in life some of them are more savvy facebook users than others and some of them relentlessly share this dumb shit all the time now i've thought it long and hard about muting them but i don't instead every time i see it yeah i try to you know as politely as i can say you know I, i'm not sure this is true oh man that's <laughs> it's a better man than i it am. sucks no 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 but you you have to be patient with people and just try to push them to consider a bit more of the information they see online i think that's how we help ourselves Again, that's not going to stop these information operations from happening. Right. But we need to understand that this stuff involves all of us. Okay. Uh, well, there you go. That's what, what to do. Uh, uh, Emerson, uh, again, the book is Like War, The Weaponization of Social Media uh, by P.W. Singer and Emerson Brooking. Uh, is there anything else you want to plug? No, I'm happy to be here. Okay. <laughs> Well, thank you for coming, and thank you for coming all the way out here to, to do this in person. Uh, and, uh, yeah, go pick up the book. It's a good book and uh, definitely talks about a lot of important stuff. Uh, Emerson, thanks again for being here. Thank you. Okay. Uh, I want to thank Emerson Brooking again for coming on the show. The book, again, is Like War, The Weaponization of Social Media. Uh, you can pick it up as we speak. Uh, you should go do that. Uh, Emerson is at E.T. Brooking on Twitter, uh, so if you want to go give him a follow, I'm sure he would be very down with that. Uh, it was his first podcast, apparently. He's been on much more prestigious programs, but uh, this was his first podcast, so I hope the experience was okay, and I hope you guys are okay with the fact that uh, this is definitely not a recording studio that I'm working in. Uh, so we did the best we could having somebody in here with me uh, for the first time. Uh, I'll be back next week. Until then, uh, as always, thanks for listening, and I'll talk to you soon. Take care. Bye-bye.